Hello, and welcome back to the Morbid Museum. We are your hosts, Katie Mead and Luke Boyd. Hello, everyone. So happy to be with you once again. Luke, where are you taking us this week? Thank you, Katie. Welcome back to the Morbid Museum podcast, folks. Today's Morbid Museum gallery talk is that of Leopold and Loeb. <laughs> this true crime story of a horrific murder of a 14-year-old boy named Bobby Franks oh. is the focus of our discussion. The murder and the salacious undertones of the accused teenagers, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb, rocked the nation and the world. The trial of Leopold and Loeb would be called the trial of the century. And the decadent lifestyle and philosophy of the pair scandalized the public during the Roaring Twenties. To this day, the story of Leopold and Loeb continues to inspire true crime enthusiasts and criminologists, podcasters, as they, seek, as they seek to understand the elusive why of the crime. This is a huge story that's been well documented, and Katie, oh, yeah. you're, you're no stranger to this story. No, no, no. It's been covered in many a good true crime podcast. We've made a habit of not mentioning our competitors by name. <laughs> But we know they're out there. We, that's okay. There's space enough for all of us. In this. Yeah, and there and everyone's treatment is different. Um, it is. And, and you know, it's funny, Luke, that you started with the the question being why. And I think why I would listen to a million more episodes of anything on this story is because we still don't understand why. Because it's almost impossible to understand the thinking of people like this. Yeah. Yeah, you know, in our pre previous education roles, we use the words unfathomable and imaginable to describe a period of traumatic history. Yes. And I think even with all that we understand about this crime that is 98 years old, the why has not is not sufficient. It's mm -hmm. never good enough. The need in our mind to balance incredible violence with something that is that we can rationally go, okay, this this horrible crime is matched by this either equally horrible evil or understandable evil mm. that we can say, okay, we understand why this happened. But in this case, these smug SOBs just did They're it. They're the worst. In these retellings of the story, the crime in question is at the center, but it's often the beginning of the story and it's not mm -hmm. look, looked on much after. But it's important to remember who the victim was in this story. As much as this is the story of Leopold and Loeb, it's also the story of 14-year-old victim Bobby Franks. Bobby Franks lived in the Kenwood neighborhood, which is in Hyde Park in Chicago, Illinois, which is where all this takes place. And mm -hmm. Hyde Park and Kenwood are bougie turfs in the oh, south you know. side of Chicago, not the, they might say what people, some people might say the good south side versus the bad south side. Yeah, this is the south side of Chicago. Yeah, it's different. You're going to get um, in a fight. <laughs> a lot of wealthy manor estates. And in fact, mm -hmm. I, I found out that this home where Bobby Franks lived, which is still standing, the mansion, is only one block from the Obama's residence when Mr. Barack oh. Obama was a senator. Yeah. Excuse me, excuse me. Take it back 98 years, May 21st, 1920. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. Are we there? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. You got to have like a, it's a long way to Tipperary. Welcome back, everybody. Yeah, yeah. so the time machine is vaulting us back to the 1920s, folks. We're in the 2020s now, which people often just make comparisons. We're in the 2020s versus 1920s. It's an era of extreme wealth, 
think of it like the 1980s before a crash of the economy, mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. regulation. So people are making a lot of money and they're not getting income taxed. They're making a lot of money. And, you know, there's a lot of people who aren't making money, of course, but mm-hmm. there's a huge boom in society. And this is also around the time when, you know, prohibition is, is on the, you know, yeah. is in the world. And so Which Chicago. Means gangsters are also on the road. Yes. And Chicago is the frontier, the wild west of crime. Mm-hmm. So they're it's, lousy with criminals. <laughs> it's virgin turf for crime. And so as many people are seeking opportunities in the West, a lot of times that opportunity seeking terms turns to crime um, because yeah. it's, you know, it's crimes of opportunity, truly, um, in all of these situations. So this is the milieu. Bobby Franks is a young man. He leaves school. He's at the Harvard Preparatory School in Kenwood. So he's only in school a few blocks from his home. And as he is walking home from school, he joins a pickup game of baseball in an empty lot where he served as the umpire. This is just very American Norman Rockwell scene. You imagine it's these so sweet. You imagine these young boys might have been a mixed crowd of some of the public school kids or the, you yeah. know, less 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 rich kids and this kid wearing his short pants and his school uniform and his blazer and his knee He's socks. So cute. I can't. He was a cute kid. Yeah. And the, you know, the photo of, of Bobby Franks, that one of him standing with his hands behind his back, you know, is the one that is, you know, most circulated here in this uh, visual description of the crime. So he goes to the baseball game and he is never heard from again. So he disappears. And the Franks family within a few hours is immediately concerned and they decide to call the police within about four hours of the uh, disappearance as they come to understand it, which we know today about 24 hours being missing, that kind of thing, what triggers an investigation. Um, But the police were involved fairly early. Um, Probably had something to do with the money. Yeah, these people have loud voices, deep yeah. pockets, you know, people respond. Um, everybody's connected to the commissioner and all that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So the following morning, May 22nd, a ransom letter appears at the doorstep of the Franks family. And it's typewritten and it's signed by a man named George Johnson, which sounds as made up as can be. So, <laughs> so Such fake. a good Good name, like wink, super wink. clever. Yeah, yours, cri- yours, <laughs> yours. Yes, Brady Bunch. Yours criminally, George Johnson. Criminally yours, <laughs> George Glass. Yes, premeditatively yours. Um, so, so premeditated. So very much kidnapped, not murdered. Cr- oh my gosh! So the letter, the letter. I, I should have a quote from here, but I don't. The letter is very. Um, dramatic, you know, dear, dear, Mr. Dear, dear, sir, please rest assured that your son is not fallen into harm, blah, blah, blah. You know, he will not be harmed if you follow our demands, all this stuff. And so the letter is demanding that the Franks family pay a ransom of $10,000 for young Bobby Frank's life. And that if they comply with every step of their demands, the boy will not come to harm. He will not be harmed. Of course, the family doesn't quite know it yet, but Bobby Franks is already dead. Yeah. And the letter is very dramatic, like I was saying, and some detectives, or I should say law enforcement people, were speculating that it sounds like it had been lifted from a comic book. (laughs) Like it was almost like a radio drama. Just what we think of, like the standard boilerplate ransom note that we see only in the movies. That's, you know, Mm -hmm. very clear, succinct, or now the ransom video, you know, if you don't comply, this will happen. Um, But there's, there's no image or 
video of a boy that's bound or, or blindfolded. Um, there's just nothing. So, of course, Mr. Franks rushes to the bank to withdraw $10,000. Um, but at the same time, he is informed that a body has been found in Indiana, which is really close to the Chicago border, not a long drive at all, 1920s. Uh, the body of a, of a young boy had been found, and it had, it had been positively identified as Bobby. So those two thoughts are sort of in Mr. Frank's mind as this is all happening. And so the police are involved. Bobby is identified. There's no doubt in, in, in anyone's mind that it is Bobby Frank's. There's only a few pieces of evidence, though, that dot the scene. Bobby's body is found stripped of clothing. The only thing of his personal effects that's found is a knee sock. Imagine those short pants we talked about and yeah. one of those long knee socks in those early 20th century shoes. You can see it in your mind very clearly. The knee sock is found as well as a pair of eyeglasses. Hmm. Eyeglasses that definitely did not belong to Bobby Frank's. They were for an adult. Yeah. Hmm. So those are the only two pieces of evidence that are found. And the eyeglasses and the ransom note would be the two pieces of evidence that would lead investigators to two young college-age students by the names of Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. <laughs> this brings us to uh, the gentleman in question. Are you going to give us a little bio on these guys? Who who were they exactly at this Absolutely. time? Absolutely, yes. So Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb are the same age, 19. Richard Loeb is slightly younger, a few months younger. Uh, Nathan Leopold was from the Kenwood neighborhood of Chicago. He was a law school student. He had already graduated from the University of Chicago. In fact, he was one of the youngest graduates of the University of Chicago's history, something of a genius as noted in his time Ooh. before he became a murderer uh he was a super nerd too from huge heard and read huge nerd the family was worth about four million dollars so we're talking Ooh. about people who are really wealthy of that time 100 years ago that's crazy money a lot of money yeah i think yeah. in in the court documents it states that he received like a check from his dad for like 125 a week which daddy. is like just all My he needed daddy money so he's from a, a prominent family, and he was an avid ornithologist, meaning he was a birder, and he was a polyglot who could speak as many as five languages, but was noted to have been, you know, well-versed in 15 languages. I know that that should make me go like, ooh, but it ooh. just makes you go, God, I hate him. I hate him so much. Yeah, you get the sense, and you see pictures of Richard, of Nathan, see the names, the names are Nathan Leopold. Yeah, um, get ready, guys. We're going to try to be better at this, but the two names, it's really hard not to conflate them. Yeah, Nathan, <laughs> Nathan had a very smug appearance. He had very big eyes, and he had a very sort of narrow face, very intense stare, and in many pictures, a sort of what we call a monobrow. Um, he's creepy looking. <laughs> he he's, just, he's, something seems wrong with him. Very intense. Yeah. And... Um, he had a smug appearance, and by most accounts of people who knew him, he was generally unlikable. He was the kid in the class who would probably say, is there a pop quiz today? You know, like he was that jerk. Oh, oh the kid who likes ornithology isn't Mr. Popular. <laughs> Not very popular. Really loved his birds. And, you know, he was, you know, sort of the cold-blooded academic of the pair. And he really provided some of the philosophical undergirding of why the two got into what they did. Mm. What I must say is that 
he really does have like Roy Cohn vibes. Mm. If you're familiar, crazy lawyer who was in the uh, McCarthy hearings and then became like a lawyer to Donald Trump, like this very despicable individual. Very One of big- history's biggest assholes. Yes. Like we could say. Yes, given immortality in Angels in America, the play. And so he's known as Babe in the family, Babe Leopold. Richard Loeb is also a University of Chicago student. He has not yet graduated at this time. Uh, His friend uh, Leopold has. His father, Richard Loeb's father, Albert Loeb, was a retired vice president of Sears and Roebuck and was worth approximately $10 million. Well, bam. So more rich, more privileged, more entitled. Yes. He was charismatic and handsome. He was Uh, handsome. He was a good looking gentleman. He was a smooth socialite and he just happened to fancy himself a criminal. (laughs) And he thought he'd get away with it because he was a very entitled person. And so he was known as Dickie. So Babe and Dickie. And they were often called these names in the trial, which is very interesting because we just think of Leopold and Loeb, Leopold and Loeb, but they were just as much Babe and Dickie in the time. <laughs> like sounds- how at our trial, I'd be called the Marquess. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be Mark. <laughs> yes, I'm Mark or the Marchioness, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Take our pick of English titles. Um, yeah, so these All two stupid nicknames for each other. These two were very good friends, and they became friends at University of Chicago. They're both from wealthy Jewish families, and they're both um, upwardly striving. They want to seek greatness, and they're young men, and they're very impressionable, mm-hmm. and they're moved by the philosophy they're reading in school and by high theories. And we might think of these two as aesthetes, people who are attracted to beauty and are just romantically obsessed with various elements of the human experience so much that they're removed from everyday life. They never worked a day in their life. So they met in 1920, and Leopold apparently fell in love with Loeb almost immediately. Nathan Leopold is the uh, less attractive one of the pair, so he's pining for Richard. And Richard, you know, had had a girl in every port. Um, So they met in 1920, and apparently on a train ride to Michigan, the two of them had their first sexual experience. A tryst. Yes, a romantic tryst on the railroad, on the road of anthracite. And I mean, it sounds sexy in theory. It's hot, yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's suppressed. You know, it's in a cabin or something. Yeah, There's... It's, it's it's you'd be in great big trouble. Huge trouble, huge trouble. And so apparently, when this ice broke in terms of their sexual relationship, they became confidants even more. They became even closer. Mm-hmm. And in that process, they hatched a plan to start doing bad things. And the first bad thing they did was a little bit, little bitty bad thing. They developed a series of sort of signs to each other, physical tells to help them cheat at card games. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is just so pre-television. <laughs> yes, I know. I'll tap my nose just so when I see all the kings are out, whatever. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so dumb. So they're cheating a card. So once they've hit that threshold of the first crime, Loeb, Richard Loeb, is really pushing it. He keeps pushing the game. We got to do something else. We got to burn something else. Yeah. We got to vandalize that something. That little hit, that little hit of adrenaline, of feel yeah. good. You can't stop. It's addictive. Right. Exactly. So there's a secret pact that the two create as part of their own dangerous game between them. Richard agrees that he will have sex with Nathan if Nathan agreed to follow him on his crimes. It's beautiful. That's that's actually the basis of my relationship with my husband. (laughs) 
devilish. Yes, it's Bonnie and Clyde. Now, you know, it was in our vows, don't you remember? <laughs> so Loeb is Loeb is manipulating, you know, Leopold's love of him and saying, "Hey, I've got a partner in crime. Sure, maybe we'll, you know, do a little something on the side, but I need you to be my right hand man." Um, and so, of he's, course, he's really evil of the two of them. To me, I don't think he's bisexual i don't think he's anything i think he's psychopath he's a nihilist it's everything is about advantage and yeah feeling good yes yeah, and seeking seeking pleasure he's yeah. led he's led by the pleasure center that's really his his thing so nathan is into the game of course because his love is now you know committed to him and they're in this secret world together where mm -hmm. they've got dirt on each other but they've also got each other and it's Nathan is inspired by Nietzsche. He's the thinker. So Frederick Nietzsche, the great philosopher of the 19th century in Germany, who in 1883, <sighs> Ugh, Nietzsche. right? He's been it, used and abused by so many maniacs. He has, he has. But I think to my own college days in high school, and it's like, yes, I had a Nietzsche reader. Like you know, of I carried it with me. Did, of course, to like normal it's cool. people, you read that and you're like, hmm, let me talk about Nietzsche. But in the hands of these fucking assholes and Hitler, it gets real bad real fast. Yes. Nietzsche's book in 1883 also sprach Zarathustra, or also sp spoke Zarathustra, puts forth this concept of the Ubermensch, this mm -hmm. ridiculous concept that the next level of humanity is not one bound by the laws of religion or moral government, but rather a sort of humanist ideal. And it's the idea of the overman or the beyond man, often called the superman. So this person, because of their supreme intellect, because of their position, they are superior and they are endowed with a certain privilege that allows them to do things that other people might decide are not correct for the greater good, right? So this is a twisted interpretation of Nietzsche that the two of them are coming up with. And so, you know, Leopold is saying we are endowed with this special privilege, this superiority, this intellect, this position, this wealth, Absolutely. that means we are we, we are above legal mm -hmm. ramifications and social mores. So Loeb was the real plotter. He wanted to do X, Y, and Z. And then mm -hmm. Leopold was sort of the apologist who's saying, well, here's why. Here's the elegant why that we're coming up with. We are not men. We are the Ubermensch. We are the supermen. And so we can do whatever the hell we want. And that always holds up in a murder investigation, by the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, you know, the two of them embark upon what they believe will be the perfect crime. And we'll talk about that um, now. So... Within a day of the killing of Bobby Franks, investigators identified Leopold and Loeb as persons of interest. Mm. And so what is their immediate response to that? Because initially they're not, they're, they're not copping to the crime. No. Deny, a deny, would never. Deny, so what, deny, deny. So what are they saying? Yeah. So their alibi is, well, they spent the night drinking. They picked up some girls. <laughs> wrong and <laughs> but pick them up and put them where <laughs> yeah. oh god where the where the, where the body just more of them um so they, they say they spend a random night drinking picking up girls driving around and so the chauffeur quickly shoots through this Loeb's chauffeur says well his car was being worked on the night in question so they didn't mention anything about renting a car which they did that night or that day of the crime i should say uh, which became into night to dispose of the body so their alibi is pretty flimsy, and the two of them are interrogated vociferously by police. And so, unfortunately, it's two things that go back to Leopold that bring down the whole house of cards. And so one is the typewriter. 
So this is incredible. Mm. This is the dawn of the FBI, right? Of J. Edgar Hoover, of amazing investigations, you know, real yeah. science, science going into this. And the the typewritten letter is 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 examined thoroughly. And an expert denotes there's a defective lowercase t and an f. I love um, that. It's on this such, typewriter. Such good detective work. It's precision. It's so fantastic. Yeah. The type, the typing analyst also noted that the typist who wrote the letter was probably a novice using two fingers, mm -hmm. <laughs> where some letters are pressed into the paper really hard and some are really light and tea, a little tap. Um, so not I think very. He was trying to say fuck, but it says duck. <laughs> Maybe there was something sexual happening while he's typing. Oh, that's me. Oh. That's me. Just that's how they know it was me texting. <laughs> yeah, no T nine word. Um, Go duck yourself. <laughs> and so, and so, this is interesting. And so, of course, you know, they're they're asking Leopold, "Where's the typewriter?" Oh, I don't know. I don't have it. I don't remember. Certainly, I would remember if I had a typewriter. Me, me, me. All this mealy mouth BS. Mm -hmm. And his home is searched, and they can't find the typewriter. Of course, the help. Giving him away, the the maid's like, I remember that typewriter. I saw it last week. <laughs> this, is, this is what I love about I these two people who think they are so smart that they are getting away with this crime. Is you didn't think to maybe pay off some people to make your alibi just a little more concrete, you fucking they, morons. They were so convinced they had this in the bag. It's the, and it's the ego. It's really. Yes. They thought they it's, were the Ubermensch. It's the Zara Chutzpah. Um, so, um, and what's also interesting is that uh, Leopold's law study group met at Leopold's house. And Leopold, being the nerd he was, typed the minutes for the law group. And all of the minutes given to police by his classmates, I wanna, I'm not going to say friends. Um, yeah, let's not pretend. Point, point to the same Underwood typewriter. So mm -hmm. the typewriter is pretty, it's pretty much, you know, caught red handed. Right. And mm -hmm. the other piece of evidence is the glasses we mentioned before. So these glasses are found at the scene. It's an ordinary pair of round rimmed glasses with a sort of tortoise shell brown and black thing going on on the, on the glasses. And adorable. They're on adorable. the first look, on the first look, they look rather banal, very commonplace, very sort of average. But on closer examination, police determine that the hinge of the glasses these precise working mechanism of how the things go across your skull were so unique that only three such eyeglasses were made and sold in the Chicago area at the time. It's amazing. Imagine something like a pair of shoes, a pair of socks, a shirt, something you wear every day, a pair of headphones, right? Earbuds, they're ubiquitous. How in the world could you possibly link a pair of earbuds to someone without, you know, mm -hmm. scraping DNA off? Yeah, without DNA, yeah. <laughs> and so... You know, I, I assume, and in the dramatic retellings, the accused are like, oh, they're not going get to the, get the glasses. There's a million of those, kid. Bye. And, yep, within a few hours, they know it's an old lady who has one, some other guy who could not have committed the crime, and this young man who can't find his glasses, Nathan Leopold. <laughs> oh, Nathan. Where's your glasses? Where's your glasses? Where's your typewriter? Why don't you have answers? And so, you know, he tries to say, oh, I was out birding over there. In that mm. area near Wolf Pond in Indiana. 
And I like to use my typewriter when I'm (laughs) birding. I was typing a report on a thrush and the typewriter (laughs) fell into the ocean, into the Lake Michigan. Um, So he denies everything, has no good answers, has no good, has no good backup answers to any of this. And he even tries to simulate what it would have been like if he was on a birding expedition and the glasses fell out. You know, he tries stumbling over the glasses are in his pocket. He tries like tripping over. Over. Like, it's like it's, it's like it's like the reverse of OJ. It's or it is OJ. It's like oh 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 yeah. So yeah. there's no way this story is holding any water whatsoever. And P.S. Just to go back, this was the genius of the two. This was a smart one. This yeah. was the high achieving <laughs> Mensa candidate. So. So uh, within a few hours, both boys are being investigated because everybody knows they're a pair, essentially partners in crime. And initially, Loeb confesses first, and he blames Nathan, saying that it was really Nathan's fault. Well, that's the best part of this, too, is like they never even considered the possibility that they would be caught. So it seems like they never had that conversation of like, listen, no matter what, don't fucking talk. Don't yeah. confess. Don't do anything. Like, well, our parents will get us lawyers. Like, don't worry about it. But nope. Yeah, their strategy beyond the actual execution of the killing was pretty limited. Um, so immediately, while uh, uh, Richard Loeb is confessing, Nathan Leopold is now being told that Richard Loeb is ratting him out, and so he blames Richard. So the two of them mm-hmm. blame each other, and they go back and forth like that. And so it's Classic pretty much no cop stuff. It's an open and shut case. And and in these early confessions, um, they delighted in the retelling of the planning of the murder. There, there is no remorse known seen whatsoever. And this is this is acutely measured by the the, the seasoned law enforcement guys in the room who are just kind of chilled by the precision and the indifference of these two young people. Yeah. And it's a dreadful crime and difficult to understand why. It is difficult to understand yeah. why. And so within 10 days. The body's been found. The perpetrators are identified. And the mystery, of course, is why. And so the 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 media is is running of is having a field day with this story as it's coming out. And this gives rise to the idea of the thrill killing. The idea is why they did it. The initial answer they provide is just because we could. We did it because we damn well wanted to. And that is something that is anathema to the people at the time who have not necessarily confronted this kind of um, evil up close in, in, in from such an un- inexplicable or uh, bizarre source. So the two really, as they're now turning and saying, oh yeah, we did it, um, the premeditation is just sensational. They rent a car under an assumed name. They pre-type the ransom note. They, they already had it ready to go. They just had to pick a victim. Mm-hmm. And six months of planning and rehearsal went into this. And now we get back to more of the crime and the contours of that. Who would the victim be? Believe it or not, this is something they did the least amount of work on. Just so funny. It's It also shows the the dehumanizing nature. They didn't really yeah, care. Yeah, it didn't who, matter. didn't care who it was. Get this. Their first candidate was... Nathan Leopold's brother, which is just so tone sickening, deaf. and but just like so stupid in terms of committing a crime beyond. But again, like why? Just why? Why? How could one live with oneself, even if you, you know? I just can't. So I am going to read now. Bear with me. A excerpt from Nathan Leopold's confession, which still survives, mm-hmm. which details the the murder in question. Now remember, this is coming from his bias. 
So he's he's giving detail that privileges his side of the story, which is they're always trying to blame the other. Right. So this that, version's gonna make Loeb sound far more guilty. Yes, it's not 50-50, it's 70-30, right? Or 51 mm -hmm. 51 49. Okay. The next problem was getting the victim to kill. This was left undecided until the day we decided to pick the most likely looking subject that came our way. The particular case happened to be Robert Franks. Richard was acquainted with Robert and asked him to come over to the car for a moment. Richard came over in the car, was introduced to me, and Richard asked him if he did not want to help him. Richard who? Richard Loeb. He replied, no. But Richard said, come in a minute. I want to ask you about a certain tennis racket. After he had gotten in, I stepped on the gas, proceeded south on Ellis Avenue to 50th Street. In the meantime, Richard asked Robert if he minded if we took him around the block, to which Robert said no. As soon as we turned the corner, Richard placed his one hand over Robert's mouth to stifle his outcry, and with his right hand beating him on the head several times with a chisel, especially mm -hmm. prepared for that purpose. The boy did not succumb as readily as we had believed, so, so for fear of being observed, Richard seized him and pulled him into the back seat. Here, he forced a cloth into his mouth. Apparently, the boy died instantly by suffocation shortly thereafter. We proceeded out to Calumet Boulevard in Indiana, drove along this road that leads to Gary, being a rather deserted place. We even stopped to buy a couple of sandwiches and some drinks for supper. Ugh. The callous, clinical, academic telling of that story is chilling the sun the not it's just nonchalant it's like in the same breath you just talked about killing a child and getting sandwiches and they of course were apparently hot dogs at some concession stand on the side of the road so it's still midday it's daylight they can't get rid of the body until nightfall so they had to kill time so there's a little sort of blanket over the dead body of bobby franks in the back seat and the two of them are enjoying a nice leisurely summer day outside Fantastic. So it was almost Leopold's brother who was killed. Bobby Franks was Richard Loeb's cousin. Yeah, I was waiting to see if you were going to mention that because that so, makes it doubly fucking gross. It's it's very scary, and there were these families were all enmeshed. They all knew each other, and so mm -hmm. you know my my poor reading aside, but you can kind of hear in that in that telling that. Bobby Franks is, you know, not put off by these guys, but he's disarmed by the charms of Richard Loeb. Oh, I want to ask you about a tennis racket. Like this very waspy, upper class sort of, you know, just oh, he's random. Also, he's also, you know, he's 19. He's kind of a grown up. He's cool. He knows oh, he's very cool. around also. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and this is a time when there was no stranger danger. Ooh. And and these two, he's sure he would accept a ride. He's from family. These yeah. These guys yeah. are, you know, up and coming strivers in the community. Um, so as the as the confession of Nathan Leopold tells, Bobby is abducted uh, near his home. He is bludgeoned over the head with a chisel, suffocated with a rag in his mouth. Then the two of them drove uh, out to Wolf Lake in Indiana. They poured hydrochloric acid over Bobby's face and his genitals to obscure his identity. Disgusting. Uh, and so again, they were not sort of slouches in terms of some of the forensics of the time, and they, they tried to disfigure the body after death so that it would not be found. His body is left in a culvert, which is basically a drainage pipe for a body of water that runs under a street. Um, and in their mind, 
Leopold and Loeb had just orchestrated and pulled off the perfect murder. But they were wrong, as murderers, <laughs> were they? <laughs> as murderers often are. So the details of the crime were dis dis disseminated far and wide, and this is known as the Jazz Age murder. And it's a product of Hollywood, so the media would say, or you know, media in general, the public is saying, youth culture. Jazz and booze. Overeducation, too much prosperity, wealth, indulgence, all these mm -hmm. bad things. And these are the kinds of things that would lead to swing movements back to like, you know, think about early temperance, then prohibition. Mm -hmm. This, These are things that are sort of, you know, hand in hand with this. This Is this the society we want? Let's cure this ill by... No, you know, say it like it's the 1920s. Say it like it's the 1920s. Is, is this, this the, the society? This, <laughs> it's a calamity, don't you know? And we cannot stand anymore <laughs> in this world and kill those boys. <laughs> so Leopold was also quoted to have said, it is just as easy to justify such a death as it is to justify an entomologist impaling a beetle on a pin. And that right there's your problem, bub. <laughs> yeah. You ain't you ain't a person. You're broken no. in your head. Completely broken. So this now leads us to the trial. So the trial is happening swiftly after the crime. The trial's nuts. For the prosecution, you have the state's attorney, uh, Robert Crow, And for the defense, you have a luminary of the legal uh, sphere, Clarence Darrow, for the defense. The famous, infamous. Famous, famous Clarence Darrow. So he would be famous a year after this trial. He would be involved in the Scopes Monkey trial, and he would be involved in many other crimes throughout his life. He's 67 at this time, so he's already an old goat. Mm -hmm. And he is known as the attorney of the damned. Yes, he loves the lost cause. <laughs> so he's a defense attorney, and he's you know defending you know criminals and murderers and things like that. And he actually was known to the Lobes. The Lobes. The Lobes were personal friends with him. So this network, um, <laughs> all their connections. And so, and he lives in Chicago. He's a Chicago resident, lives in Hyde Park. So he's a neighborhood guy. And mm -hmm. uh, apparently uh, uh, Loeb's uncle would say, we'll pay you anything, but for God's sake, don't let them hang. Mm -hmm. And that is the essence of this trial. He's a brilliant legal strategist. He's a very fluent speaker. He's extremely charismatic. That word gets used too much, but he really was. He was a, a consummate actor in the courtroom oh, yeah. drama. Uh, there was something about him being able to speak extemporaneously without notes and speaking for hours and hours. He was an old school orator. That's the mm. thing that's so amazing is that he would go on mm -hmm. without without notes, without mm -hmm. scripts. Is that he and you know. Lawyers generally aren't allowed to just ramble <laughs> to that extent now as as he was given a lot of leeway to do that stuff. But it's incredible what a what a phenomenal orator he was. Yes. And there's been a question often about Darrow's fee. And this was arbitrated in the media. So people thought, well, these wealthy Jewish families are going to pay off this, pay off the judge. They're going to bribe people. Mm -hmm. They're going to pay a million dollars to get these guys off free buying justice, right? That's a very mm -hmm. sensitive subject in American jurisprudence. Now, one thing that I, I was just thinking about that I hadn't thought about before is, is this whole area um, Jewish? Or it's just all these Jewish families know each other. Like how much is sort of their Jewishness connected to the crime at this point and like the way that they're being perceived it's an and, amazing and Darrow's amazing. concerns with that as well. That's an amazing question. And thank you. Looking looking back at it, 
we know that anti-Semitism was raging in this oh, sure. country for a long when time. isn't it, really? <laughs> yeah, a long time before, after, and since, right? Yeah. And so there's a thought that what is Darrow trying to prove by taking on this trial? And it's a rather interesting detail in the trial that all the parties involved were Jewish. Mm-hmm. Leopold and Loeb and Bobby Franks were all yeah, part yeah. of the Jewish community. And there was also a rabbi who was quoted at the time saying that, oh, these these Jews have fallen away from true adherence to the faith and have been corrupted by mm. extreme wealth, loose morals, things like that. Um, but there seems to be no political maneuver there because in terms of the wider public, the sensation sensational aspect of the crime was the focus. If it was Jewish killers of a Christian boy, it would have been a different oh, story. Oh, forget it. Mm-hmm. So the anti-Semitism is sort of taking a back seat in this case, and the focus is more on the trial itself and the crime. Mm-hmm. But going back to what Darrow was paid, we don't know what he got for the for the trial. And it was a big yeah. trial. And so uh, the unfortunate thing is a lot of those records are just lost. There's no receipt. There's nothing. Um, yeah. It may have been it may have been $100,000. Apparently, the Chicago, the state, the Illinois State Bar was called in to set the price for. Oh, the, yeah, because they were like, well, call the Bar Association. They'll set the price. So there's no impropriety. That's that's what was proven or what was known to have happened. But what's also interesting is that there was a case in a labor dispute years before, or it might've been right after where Clarence Darrow was accused of bribing, uh, various elements of, of legal proceedings, judges and juries. And he, ve- he vehemently denied it and was exonerated on all charges, but modern thinkers believe he probably did. Bribe. I mean, with the amount, with the amount of very bad cases he got involved in, and his pretty good track record, something had to have happened yeah. along the way where money was exchanging hands or whatever. And like, you've seen just, the you've seen the Untouchables. Defense course. lawyers are no strangers to bribery, you know. And so this is Chicago. It's a corrupt town. It's Chicago. Um, Chicago, eh? So putting all that aside. Darrow's main concern is making this a trial about what these what's going to happen to these boys. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's about we cannot allow these boys to hang. The mob mentality of the public who see this horrible crime and the loss of this dear young lad and they're going to say hang him, hang him, hang him, that mob mentality. And Darrow was immensely against the death penalty. It was one of his biggest champion causes. And this is why he takes on the case, mm-hmm. because he really wants to focus on getting these boys off the death penalty. Not maybe necessarily getting them free, but making sure they don't <laughs> hang. And capital punishment was still very popular in the United States at the time. It was a really big issue. And like many of these issues, it was kicked to the states. And mm-hmm. so um, so it's interesting. Nathan Leopold's first impression of Clarence Darrow was one of horror. <laughs> 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 because too young... Prissy Nathan Leopold, Clarence Darrow was probably scary. He was 67. He was rumpled as hell. He was he was what we might call shambolic, like former prime minister of the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson. So he's got his crazy hair and he's his his suits all shitty and like he just looks right. like a bag of chips. Like he's just gross. <laughs> <laughs> like the embodiment of a wrinkle. <laughs> yeah. 
a wrinkled bag of ruffles. Ah. <laughs> so a, many ridges. He's a kerfuffle. So, oh. so he doesn't look great, but of course that's, the, that's his, that's his genius is that he's a brilliant thinker. And yeah, he's like, I may be showered today. I don't care. I'm going to comb my hair. Well, it makes him so unassuming when he fucking. So unassuming. Yeah. And he has these eyes. Clarence Darrow has these eyes. If you look in these pictures, I don't mm. know if his eyes were gray, but they're so piercing uh, and they're very, very magnetic. Mm -hmm. Um, so immediately the state starts making its case and they engage all of these alienists to uh, analyze the pair, psychologists, as we would call them yes. today. And the two of them say, well, just in case, Mr. Darrow, you're going to say they're not guilty by virtue of insanity. These two boys are not insane, according to the state. They are not mm -hmm. insane. They are regular, regular, sane. They are completely of sound mind. They did this because... They wanted to because they're evil. They were seeking a thrill. They were German philosopher nerds. All of these things. So and uh, and Darrow says to that, Darrow's like, "Screw you guys! I'm going to hire my own psychoanalytical team. I'm even going to invite Sigmund Freud to the table." So how you like me now? <laughs> Freud says no, and so <laughs> Freud says nein, nicht. Um, <laughs> No, <laughs> I don't want to deal with these Obermensch idiots. Yes. Um, so at the first hearing, Darrow, uh, uh, the, I'm sorry, the first sort of plea that when Darrow takes charge is that these boys are not guilty. That's the, that's the argument. We're gonna get, we're gonna make sure these prove these boys are not guilty. Then when he's talking to the boys, he changes his tactic, and he then changes the plea to guilty. Uh -huh. which changes the game altogether. Now, you don't need a jury to determine guilt. You need a judge to determine punishment. Smart. It was it was honestly it was the only way they were going to get out of this alive. <laughs> it changes the focus completely. You yeah. know, so it's it's less about charging guilt for a crime and more about it's what more are about we punishment. Do? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And honestly, at the end of the day, everyone thinks they're guilty anyway. So what's the point of a trial? Let's just talk exactly. about punishment. Let's skip <laughs> let's skip the BS. Well, who, who, why are we fucking around? <laughs> so defense attorney Robert Crow is like, whoa, 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 in the courtroom. This is happening live in front of his face. <laughs> <laughs> he is so flustered. And so he anticipated this plea of not guilty. And now he has to, he's thrown by this complete switch. Well, now attack. where goes his strategy, right? Exactly. What is he supposed to do? So his, his strategy, of course, is just to harp on the blood. And yeah, make the crime them terrible. And, and the sort of background of the guys, which is not hard work at all. Um, mm -hmm. So the pair are also examined by criminologists and psychoanalysts, like I said, by Darrow. And this is amazing. So initially... The, the analysts hired by Darrow said that the boys were not insane. Mm -hmm. That was what they found. Then when Darrow changed his tactics, they flipped their diagnosis. So the psychological. That's not how that not, works. <laughs> how much money did they get? Right. So yeah, for real. And what's crazy is that apparently Darrow suppressed the initial psychological psychological evaluations for the boys. They were not submitted into court and they were lost for 90 years and only turned up Jesus. about 20 years ago or about, I guess, 15 years ago, 10 years ago. And the most important thing I think with all of this is behind Darrow are two, not just one, two families with incredibly deep pockets. 
mm-hmm. which make them more than capable of doing whatever it fucking takes yeah. to get these and- boys uh, you know, not free, but prevent them from getting killed. Right. And we've all lived through courtroom dramas where the public has a mind and the public has a verdict that's already going into mm-hmm. the trial saying, this is the result. And oftentimes justice does not swing in the direction where the public wants to go. And we often can assume, oh, it's because of wealth, because of money, because of celebrity, because of this, because of that, because of racism, whatever it is. That's an old trope. And that goes back way before this situation. Darrow wanted to show psychological weakness to determine why the crime was committed to influence sentencing. And this was groundbreaking. This was not an area we had tread before in courtroom dramas. So he's saying that Babe and Dickie are victims of their wealth. Get that? Which is a hard pill. Me too. (laughs) So, and uh, before that happens, Crow just goes in on the nastiness of the, of the murder the ridiculous characters that these two guys were. And in the course of seven days of trial proceedings, he introduces 80 witnesses. And he says, this is the most cruel, cowardly, dastardly murder ever committed in the annals of American jurisprudence and recommends the death penalty. I don't know about part of that, but most of that, yes. I don't know if it's the worst ever, but it's really bad. (laughs) And so Leopold and Loeb's demeanor, they've they're seen smiling. They're seen That's the thing with these fuckers. If this was court TV, forget it. Yeah, this this the sketches of these two would be extremely condemning. And Nancy Grace is not gonna appear tonight, but she would have been (laughs) all over this stuff. Oh come on. (laughs) Just a little I haven't seen this kind of indifference since the Melendez brothers, okay? <laughs> I mean, I haven't seen the Melendez brothers since 1924. <laughs> Love to wipe that smug look right off his face. If I could vote, I'd vote. <laughs> <laughs> if I could vote. I'd vote to hang these boys. So... <laughs> Darrow wants to show that these boys are ill, which anybody who sees them smiling can certainly see they're very glib, if not ridiculously disturbed. So he's making a case that they're mentally and physically diseased, which made them not responsible for their actions. His analysts diagnosed the pair as insane, which, as we said, is a 90-degree pivot from what they said before. Now they say they're fully insane. These boys are fully insane. Pre-trial examinations, they talk about dysfunctional endocrine glands, delusions. They talk about Loeb being the master of Leopold, that Leopold is the slave to Loeb, this dom-sub relationship, if you were. And it creates this inner fantasy, this bond, this stunted emotional growth. The big Mm -hmm. argument here is these these were children. These were young kids. They're 19, yes, but they're still children. Uh, Darrow makes the argument that Richard, or the experts help support the claim that Richard Loeb is infantile, still yes. talking to his teddy bear at night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they're really zooming in on the on the upbringing. So we mentioned and that- And they, they yeah. talk about both allege some sort of abuse in their childhoods, right? Exactly. So remember, they're raised by governesses. So the governesses are thrown completely under the bus. All of a sudden, these governesses are pure evil. And they might have been. You know, to me, a governess is like, it's a Peter Pan. Fraulein Maria. It's it's beautiful. Yeah, it's it's kind of music. It's teaching you how to sing. Yeah, you have rich parents. They're indifferent. They're traveling. You have a wonderful woman who works for you who's a better parent than either of your real parents, right? Mm -hmm. So the story goes, time immemorial. No, 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 no. 
know, apparently the Loeb and Leopold families had the worst governesses of all time. Apparently, Nathan Leopold was sexually abused by his governess at the age of 12. According to his saying so. According to the backstory they're willing to uh, to uphold. And, you know, the whole family. Okay, and that's the thing. So did he say it? Did Daryl invent it? Right. Did the psychologists invent it? Right. So we know we know the boys didn't testify, but mm-hmm. um, you know through the course of Darrow's investigation, these things bear out. So it likely came forth from psycho psychoanalytical examinations of the boys, mm-hmm. um, which were you know generous. And it also they also stated that uh, Nathan, I'm sorry, Richard Loeb was smothered by his governess. Um, so so much attention, like just you know, and also very close and tender. And because I could see why that would make you want to kill a kid. And right. And apparently, you know, him hiding from the governess or trying to get something by the governess, because she was very hands-on, a helicopter governess, if you were, that made him akin to a lifetime of deception because he started lying to his governess to get away with stealing cookies out of the cookie jar. Yep. So it's all the governess's fault. Yeah. This is also solid psychology. (laughs) It's pseudoscience. Yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah. So one thing you haven't mentioned yet, which is it's one of the things that makes this story so captivating is their relationship. And the fact that, you know, whether or not they're they're gay or they just have this this sexual relationship with one another this is brought into evidence during the trial how much do they talk about it not talk about it what do you what do you have on that the homosexual whiff in this whole story is absent altogether mm-hmm. and this is interesting because this goes back to judge caverly judge caverly was the arbiter of what was being admitted to evidence and what wasn't and he was pretty generous overall in terms of letting darrow go on for hours and hours and letting all these cockamamie doctors argue with each other but the propriety of the age made it so that any discussion of the gay relationship between the two was not discussed at all which again, 98 years later, would be front and center. Think about the staircase. Think about any courtroom drama. A lot of the motivations of these two are their love for each other. And we know that in a mob mentality universe, you were when you're with someone or a group or a gang, you do things that you know are wrong, but because you're socially reinforcing each other and adding a love element to that, even more devoted. So there's almost no discussion of the homosexuality really at all, which is fascinating. But the public, I think, is pretty wise, as they say, just by looking at them, that there's something mm-hmm. going on between these two. And in every depiction of the two in media the gayness is 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 in it because it's good for the drama and i think it's also part of the allure is that these two were very strident in that they were going out on their own but i also think their homosexuality is probably part of their was probably also justified in their ubermensch rationale mm-hmm. that you know they were elevated they were elite they were the elected they were something else they were not quite normal i don't think they'd call themselves gay i don't think they no. would no that's no, not what that would. is And, you know, I guess the question can come from many people is, where's the receipts? We know there were letters exchanged between the two that survived, that betrayed the confidences. You know, they had this pact that they had with each other. Um, So it was well documented. And, uh, uh, you know, in life, the two didn't necessarily 
they weren't outward with it, but they were devoted to each other. And, you know, they they were lovers. So this is a part of it. And we know lovers have committed crimes together. You know, usually sure. we hear about usually heterosexual crimes. Um, but in this case, this one, the thrill killing, the first one just for the thrill, yeah. of course, by these two hedonistic homosexuals. You know, yeah. it all goes into the same pot of of why. One of the um, one of the things that I hear a lot with them, though, is uh, quite clearly uh, Nathan Leopold is the one who's far more emotionally and possibly also more sexually invested in the relationship than Loeb. And yes, that had he gone his whole life not meeting Richard Loeb, that he probably never would have killed anyone. Could you say the same for Richard Loeb or was he always on a path to destruction? I don't know. It's hard to say. It's I really do think there's this unique chemistry with them and you've got this complementary nature in Leopold pining for Loeb, mm -hmm. compromising integrity for Loeb, Loeb manipulating the lesser, yeah. the submissive. Honestly, I could believe the idea that he was potentially abused and was stuck like mentally in this submissive relationship mindset. You know, I think that Definitely. of the two scenarios, that one is the one that actually could make a little bit of sense versus the I lie all the time now because my governess gave me hugs. <laughs> <laughs> After this trial, which is going on for three months, we get to the end, and Darrow's closing arguments are upheld in the history of law as something magical. He, again, as we mentioned, spoke for hours on end without any notes, and he is making a desperate plea, and he is making rhetorical appeals to everybody in the room, not just the judge. He's writing for the media. He's writing for the onlooker. He's writing for the readers of the newspapers. He's trying to change hearts and minds. And so I'll read a few little quotes. They're so beautiful. It was hard to choose which ones. I had like this giant document to clip from. Mm -hmm. And so we'll talk a little bit about he's trying to get to the why of this is why we shouldn't execute these boys. Kill them. Will that prevent other senseless boys or other vicious men or vicious women from killing? No. It will simply call upon every weak-minded person to do as they have done. I know that any mother might be the mother of Bobby Franks, who left his home and went to his school and who never came back. I know that any mother might be the mother of Richard Loeb and Nathan Leopold just the same. The trouble is this. That is... If she is the mother of Nathan Leopold or Richard Loeb, she has to ask herself the question, how come my children came to be what they are? From what ancestry did they get this strain? How far removed was the poison that destroyed their lives? Was I the bearer of the seed that brings them to death? Any mother might be the mother of any of them, but these two are the victims. And he goes again for the jugular with all the mothers in the room. No one knows what will be the fate of the child he gets or the child she bears. The fate of the child is the last thing they consider. 
and I'll continue. All of these are helpless. We are all helpless. But when you are pitying the father and the mother of poor Bobby Franks, what about the fathers and mothers of these two unfortunate boys? And what about the unfortunate boys themselves? And what about all the fathers and all the mothers and all the boys and all the girls who tread a dangerous maze in darkness from birth to death? And he continues with this rhetoric going into the fallacy of hanging equaling the arrestment of these kinds of crimes. Mm-hmm. Do you think you can cure the hatreds and the maladjustments of the world by hanging them? You simply show your ignorance and your hate when you say it. You may here and there cure hatred with love and understanding, but you can only add fuel to the flames by cruelty and hate. And he uses this construct of love over and Mm -hmm. over again, which is just remarkable. No, it's smart. It's, it's every, everyone smart. knows that feeling and, and especially trying to appeal to parents. It's, it's a big one. Yeah. And he's talking about not just what they did, but who they are and mm-hmm. the emotion that, that, that animates them. He talks about how intellect, intellect is one thing, but it's emotion that guides our living. And so he's trying to get to the emotional why of the boys. In the past 100 years in in Illinois history, no one under the age of 23 had been executed from, you know, 1824 Mm -hmm. until 1924. And so this is the big thing. We're saying we're now about to hang two 19-year-old kids. Right. Are we about to set a precedent? And he is putting the world and humanity on trial. He says, we are used to blood, your honor. We have delighted in it. We have preached it until the world has been drenched in blood and has left its stains of blood on every human heart. Incredibly morbid prose, incredibly Mm -hmm. poetic, very beautifully stated, not clinical, not legalese. It's something else. It's higher rhetoric. He says, hanging is barbarism. And so he's making a plea for these boys and the countless others who may find themselves in the same situation. You don't know if your child or your daughter is going to become a murderer or become the victim of a murderer. And it's so easy for us, the uninvolved parties in this case, to cast our own aspersions and doubts and say, hang them. And he's shining a light on uh, Loeb's and Leopold's mothers, which is just remarkable. It's very powerful stuff. So It's a hard thing, too. I mean, I think a lot of people are very quick to blame parents when yeah. their children turn out to be monsters yeah you know and and so it's a bit i mean he's a bit ahead of his time in terms of trying to find empathy he is all parties involved and in this three-day closing statement yeah i know that's the craziest part this goes on for three days he talks about the crime he reviews the crime he lays it bare he doesn't Mm -hmm. sugarcoat it and he says it's awful it's evil and poor bobby franks isn't here to tell the tale and all of this all this stuff and so he's really focusing on this what is to be done with them so the judge deliberates on this for 12 days and he finally hands down his verdict on september 10th 1924 overall Caverly says he is unmoved by the scientific testimony. He's like, this doesn't mean diddly squat to me in mm-hmm. terms of the psychoanalysts, the alienists. You can all go scratch as far as I'm concerned. I'm basing this decision purely on the age of the accused, which for the judge <laughs> is, is a way out of this. So he sentences Leopold and Loeb to life in prison for murder plus 
99 years for kidnapping, which again, Katie, goes back to that perennial theme yeah. of the history of trauma of kidnapping in this yeah. country and how this 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 crime struck a chord because it was the two worst things that could happen to one's child. Yeah, it's a, it's they are so lucky that they were the age that they were when they carried mm -hmm. this out because there is no way on earth they would have gotten away without the death penalty. It's just it's not true. possible. And it's also interesting to think if they were a little older, you know, if they had kind of grown out of this childish, mm -hmm. you know, trying to be an adult, trying to be a learned, you know. I think maybe if they had been 20. Yeah. I think there's something about 19. The teen in there is what makes it really uh, unpalatable. And maybe you're the judge who's like, I don't want to be the one nope. who started this. Nope. I don't want to set the precedent. I just don't. Right. And and that's that was part of Daryl's argument is that the world will be looking at Chicago and will and marvel, like, fuck, 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 we'll fuck. marvel at our barbarism. <laughs> yeah. Fuck, that's me. Fuck. So <laughs> what happens after the trial? So Richard Loeb doesn't make it much further. He is killed in prison in 1936. Both boys are imprisoned in Joliet, which is a city in Illinois, south of Chicago. And in the same jail... Uh, Richard, apparently, was making unwanted advances on another inmate, and this inmate stabbed him over 50 times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he and, had a little rep, I have heard, in prison. Oh, right? he yeah, got he was wheeling, He was wheeling and dealing, and yeah, he just pissed off the wrong person. He's like, I can, I can manipulate these, these jail guards, these inmates. Yeah, even it's another... after his quote unquote perfect crime didn't end perfectly. He still thought right. he was better than everybody else. Right. He really did. What I thought was interesting and kind of tender uh, is that Leopold rushed to Loeb's side and was at, was at his bedside when he expired because they were in the same jail. Which is so funny because that I feel like that's one of the first things that happens in any of these sort of partner crimes is they are never allowed to no, be near each other ever never, again. Never, never, you know? especially when they were, when they were in love or maybe if that, I don't know if that love lasted through the trial. Um, Nathan Leopold is released from prison in 1958. It's so fucking crazy. It is crazy. Um, so he participated in various studies, medical studies throughout his imprisonment. And there were a lot of people who advocated for his early release. So um, mm -hmm. there were people who were involved in the movies and books being written and other thinkers. Carl Sandburg was interviewed in one of these parole meetings. Um, and so there's this was the over... Idea, I'm sorry, yeah. I was just going to ask, was the idea behind that that he is a victim of Loeb and that's why he deserves freedom? Is that... I think even with the time that had passed, there was... Yes, there was a thought that there was a lesser of two evils mm -hmm. and that this person had led a decent existence in prison, had been an ups, had been, how do I say, upstanding prisoner. I mean, you know, he. Yeah, not, good, a good prisoner. Right. He just kept you his were head. You were good at not killing children because you were in jail. He just kept his head down and kept going. But it is strange to think that in a generation, these one of these guys just walks out. And so yeah. um, within a few months. He writes his memoir, Life Plus 99 Years. 
Crazy. Which is kind of an FU to the world uh, mm -hmm. because he's like, here I am. Look at me now. And oh, yeah. And in the memoir, he doesn't talk really about the murder at all. It's more of the philosophy and the history and his I mean, waxing. It's just a little blip in his life. Did yeah. it even really matter? Waxing yeah. poetically on his, on his life. And so what's really amazing is that this crime has captured the imagination of Hollywood and has captured the imagination of many an armchair criminologist. And there are several films that were made uh, mm -hmm. about this story. Uh, one was a play uh, called Rope, which eventually became a movie of the same name directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And so like it is a play, it takes place in one room. It takes place in the killer's apartment. And this time it's in New York. And this time Jimmy Stewart, is an unlikely guest at a dinner party who unwittingly unmasks the two boys as killers. Now, let me just see here where I left my case <laughs> in this uh, room. Oh, oh, about all. So, Mary! Mary! <laughs> grab the kids, let's go! <laughs> That's the worst. It went bad. It started worst good. impression. You started, you started better. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> And that's interesting because they don't the, the characters are never Leopold and Loeb. They're always other characters. But yes. in all the scenarios, there's this very clear delineation between the bookish, nebbish, sort of quieter one, mm -hmm. and then the more academe, the more Gatsby-esque, the more like mover and shaker, the smooth. Sexy. Very, smarty. very sexy. Very yeah. sexy. Right. And so they play into that. And there's always a lilt of a homosexual thing there going on. Again, a whiff, we might say, but it's not really hit on too strongly. Um, yeah. Because it's the 50s, yeah. you know. And so later on in, the, in 1959, there's a film called Compulsion with Dean Stockwell yes. as uh, the Leopold facsimile and my buddy, Orson Welles as mm -hmm. uh, Clarence Darrow. And so again, they're all different names of characters, but he's definitely Clarence Darrow. Oh my gosh. He's rumpled. He's got a big fake nose and he is <laughs> so good. And so that's based on Meyer Levin's book in 1958 of the same name. So have you and, seen it? Oh yeah, I've seen it. I've never seen it. I've oh, heard. it's good. It's great. It's I like compulsion better than rope. Um, okay. Rope, even though it's Hitchcock, Hitchcock and, you know, Hitchcock is great at, um, suspense and basically you know in that movie there's literally a body on the stage the whole time you just can't see it and mm. so i imagine as a play it's probably riveting because that's you're very just, cool it's very cool yeah so it's a great setup and hitchcock mm -hmm. liked filming plays he liked shooting a play straight he loved that as yeah. a film as a film um uh, subject um the sure. compulsion film is more exploitation it's more sensational it's mm. more like it's pr it's just a few years before baby jane and all those weird b movies Ugh, um best. and of course scott orson wells in it so you knew it was a flop um so <laughs> <Man>. <laughs> but, but both were plays and mm. I think that's just fascinating. There's been several the books. The story works well on the stage. It does. It works well on the stage. Never the Sinner uh, was another play by John Logan. A book for the thrill of it by Simon Betts. And, Katie, I've been holding on to this Oh, egg. I know. I know what you're okay. getting to. So we got to talk about the musical. <laughs> <laughs> so Thrill Me. A musical uh, was off Broadway in 2005. It's been all over the country. And I have a clip ready to go. Um, yeah, you do. I do. Just tell yourself we're both superior to all. We simply function on a higher plane. We'll let Chicago take the fall. 
shortage of perverts, snake and glitter. I don't it's like a montage clip says so a couple different bars from different songs it's great. That, the other song is that one of the pact um mm-hmm. that comes later on so it's actually the music's pretty good it's um, not bad it's I, really I, not. yeah i like it um so hopefully i can catch it at some point uh, in the future <laughs> so there's a lot of theatrical uh, explorations of this topic which again are not so much talking about the crime, but focusing on the inner lives of the two men and mm-hmm. the why, trying to put some artistic flavor and exploration into the why. And that's it, right? It's like we started and ended it in the exact same place of like, why? We really don't know why. We don't have a good why. We don't have a satisfactory why. We have we their have, why. We have their why, which is terrible governess abuse parental abuse neglect um wealth privilege all these things but all of those things also are not satisfying yeah because at the end of the day you know if you really without all the detail these are just fucking rich assholes who thought they could get away with something which isn't that a lot of rich assholes sure sure (laughs) So now we get now we get down to the nitty gritty. We get down to what this podcast is all about. Yes, Tell this us is where our. We can learn more. This is our, this is our take. You got and this it. This has so, a lot of good stuff too, right? There's <laughs> some stuff. Yes, um, the famous glasses of Nathan Leopold are in the collection of the Chicago History Museum. I did not know that till you told me. I had no idea that they. I figured they were like you know maybe housed in like Quantico or, or An something. Evidence locker. The government. Yeah. 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 I didn't know that they actually had inherited them. It's pretty They amazing. have the glasses and I watched a video with the curator. Cause when I was in the Chicago history museum a few weeks ago, I did not see them and they do not come out very often. Um, so oh. no, yeah. Yeah. They are not seen often and apparently they are falling apart. So the, oh dear. yeah, they're just sort of like, you know, they've been together for a hundred years and they're just sort of breaking apart. So they're very sure. delicate. So they go into cold storage. Um, but there are a number of, there's a huge main history exhibit in, in the Chicago history museum and it goes into this, you know, Chicago facing crisis. And there's so many mm. dark moments that are explored and they hit on the sensationality of Leopold and Loeb. Um, but the materiality of it is rather slim. Um, you know, I'm mm. wondering now if maybe they'll get them back out even temporarily for the hundred year anniversary that's coming up in the, in the video interview, they were on display briefly. So they do come out, they, they, they actively Mm. rotate and they, they sort of, yeah, they sort of wheel them out once in a while. Um, they're, they're very iconic and they're very recognizable and they're really famous. Um, yeah. And, uh, I really want to talk about another really interesting thing. So also in Illinois at, in Northwestern university, there are, uh, a, a archive collection of the courtroom documents from the Leopold and Loeb trial. And according to Nina Barrett, the author of the Leopold and Loeb files, a scholar who has poured over these materials um, very meticulously, mm-hmm. you know, something I was not necessarily privy to is that in courtroom uh, trials, often documents would literally just be ripped or shredded or tossed. There was no memorialization really going on really? besides besides a stenographer, even in the 20s. Oh, that's so, so awful. 
it's strange to think. I mean, thank goodness for the stenographers, um, because that's the only record in many cases. And yeah. so, yeah, if you imagine you just got this whole huge case, maybe you lost, maybe you won. It's like, ah, throw the papers in the air. And <laughs> off they go. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. Legally blonde moment. So, but this was yeah. like people involved in the case knew they were part of something historical. I mean, yeah. so in dribs and drabs, these papers ended up at Northwestern University. So they have interrogation transcripts, which are fascinating. They have the ransom letter. Uh, they have the confessions, which I read from earlier. So and wow. all, all of this stuff is available online. And it's all very open, very easy to get to. That's so super it's, cool. you don't have to go there. You don't have to, you know, pay a fee. Um, yeah. You can get the information really quickly. So it's very democratic in that way. Um, and the uh, Nina Barrett had put on an exhibit at Northwestern called The Murder That Wouldn't Die. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just fantastic. Yeah. Um, now, as we talked about before, Nathan Leopold was an ornithologist. And yes. so pictures of the inside of his house when he's being interviewed show us these beautiful cases that any Victorian would be jealous of with a <laughs> lot of stuffed birds inside. So he had hundreds of stuffed birds. And in the years following the trial, Leopold's brother, likely the one that was going to get killed, donated 14 birds to the Field Museum. <laughs> 14 birds in the Field Museum in Chicago. But there were hundreds of others, and where'd they all go? Well, they were traced down to the Elgin Audubon Society in yes. Illinois. So it's a small little random town. And they have hundreds of these birds still on display to this day. Just take into just take a moment to absorb the sentence. Hundreds. Hundreds. Of birds. Like shelves. Like they have like they have ones on display, and then they have like all these sample tails and feathers and birds. And there was such an outcry about the stain of mm. Leopold in the town of Elgin that the museum purposefully destroyed any evidence of provenance of his yes. samples. So all of his specimens, for the most part, have no Leop you know, no N. Leopold, no identifying anything. But it's really interesting. There was a gentleman who did an interview with a lady who worked at the museum, and she goes, well, I'm not an ornithologist. And she goes, oh, that looks like one of his birds because they all look angry. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> so, oh, you can definitely tell which birds are his because they're the ones that are like, Rah! yeah. <laughs> and he like stuffed them to make them look like they're screaming at you. Yeah. So, of course, yeah, they're pretty easy to pick out, apparently. The primal scream. The Leopold and Loeb story is one that even with hours of investigating or hours of podcasting, there can still be more to explore. But Definitely. also, you know, beyond the, the grisly detail, there's something larger about where society was in the 1920s in regards to capital punishment, in regards mm -hmm. to our feelings about youth and responsibility, um, but also to the ideas of privilege, you know, the ideas of Jewish yes. life in America, the kinds of capital punishment that were doled out to the satisfaction of the mob and how yeah. we're, appe we're appealing to something higher, a godlike essence, not far removed from the Ubermensch, if you were. And what yeah. I also think is fascinating about the Ubermensch is that Nietzsche's thoughts were also used to uphold eugenics, which would have been used against people yeah. of the Jewish faith decades it's later. really, really, I always found that part of the story so ironic. It's true. But so that, yeah, yeah Nietzsche, I, like I said, Nietzsche in the wrong hands. 
goes scary. south real fast. Scary. It's true. Yeah. It will always remain fascinating because of the brutality of it, mm-hmm. uh, the callousness of the criminals themselves. And yeah, their relationship sort of became this horrendous crime. It's just, it's it's a wild story. I don't think we'll ever tire of it. I think there'll continue to be treatments of it for many, many, many decades to come. Yours was great. I love, and especially oh, learning you. all the museum stuff. Like, you know, that's obviously why we're here. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. So check out Northwestern University. We'll put a bunch of links in the description. Yeah, um, that sounds incredible. Great find. It's a great treasure. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for listening, folks, to the Morbid Museum Podcast. Please remember to rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on social media on Instagram at The Morbid Museum for more morbid content. Until next time, we'll see you for another gallery talk inside The Morbid Museum Podcast. Bye-bye. Bye.